0: Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn.
1: Hello and welcome to Hospitals in Focus. We appreciate your listening. In this episode, we will look at the Medicaid program, a program that covers over 86 million of the most vulnerable Americans, ranging from young mothers to babies to seniors in nursing home care. Medicaid has been in the headlines a lot this year as public policymakers on the state and federal levels discuss ways to manage enrollment and bring spending under control. It is now the largest funded government health program in the nation. Medicaid is run primarily by the states and faces many immediate issues that threaten coverage from eligibility redeterminations to legislative efforts to mandate work requirements. The implications of these challenges could have far-ranged effect on the lives of millions of our country's most vulnerable patients. Here to walk us through these policies is Dr. Lynn Blewett, a professor at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, where she has built a reputation as one of the nation's foremost experts in health policy, access to care, and Medicaid coverage. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lynn.
0: Thanks, Chip. Happy to be here. As
1: we get started, let's talk a bit about you. Uh, what drew you into research and, and your specialty of Medicaid?
0: Well, once I got my PhD from the University of Minnesota, I left and went to work for the state as their health economist. And I started a small group looking at healthcare care markets, spending and the distribution of health insurance coverage. And I got very involved in state health policy. And at the time, it was the beginning of our Minnesota Care program, which was a forerunner for the children's health insurance program at the federal level. So we started that program with state dollars, which is now matched with federal funds. And so I was concerned about how people got coverage. And at the time, we thought we could get to universal coverage in Minnesota. And so I was working very hard at avenues and um, mechanisms to increase coverage and access. And I have just stayed at the state level, which at the state level, Medicaid is really um, where the action is in terms of access expansion. So that's kind of how I got started.
1: Yeah, I guess from that period, Medicaid became the largest. It, it now covers uh, more Americans and spends more money than even Medicare, which had been our largest program. So you're where the action is. So let's talk a bit about the complexity, though, of this program, because it's not simply a health care program per se or a health care delivery program. It does so many other things for the Medicaid recipients and the role it plays in our health care system. Where do you see it headed in the future?
0: It's an interesting program in that it started as a program for moms and kids and low income families, and now it covers the, the long term care costs of the elderly and the disabled. The ACA expansion to include adults without children are now covered. And so it is almost one out of every five individuals in the country are enrolled in the Medicaid program. Now, the costs are going up as healthcare costs are increasing. States have to manage their budgets every year or two years. Most are on a um, two-year cycle. And so there's pressure in terms of financing and where the money is going to come from. And so both at the federal level, as we've just seen with this new debt ceiling debate and concern about what's going to happen to the Medicaid and our other subsidized programs. There's a tension between the importance of this program in providing coverage for a substantial part of our population and the costs that incur because of that. And it's all tax supported, so it relies on state and federal money. And because states have to balance their budgets, it's really, and have less finance capability than the federal government, it really is a federal government decision in terms of either expansion or changes in that financing strategy.
1: Just as an aside, in terms of looking to the future, where do you see states going? Because you bring up this really key issue that differentiates the sort of the federal side of it from the state side. I mean, at the the state side, you've got this issue of balanced budgets in most states, having to balance their budget. And the fact that Medicaid, I think frequently could be the largest or one of the largest items in their budget. Do you see constraint at the state's becoming a problem? Will any states, uh, do you think, back off Medicaid to the extent they can within the federal requirements?
0: With the ACA expansion, the federal government is paying 90% of the costs of that expansion. So most states, it makes financial and economic sense to participate. There are 10 states that haven't expanded. And why they haven't expanded is partly political and partly budgetary. But any economic analysis shows that it's a boon to the states to do the expansion. And the states that have some revenue, Minnesota just came off a huge surplus of $18 billion. California has a huge surplus. And and the states are now providing coverage, expanding to undocumented and others who are not currently eligible with state-only dollars. So they're doing what they can to expand. I don't see the feds supporting that that progress, but as we saw with the kids, they didn't Cover you know low income coverage families back in the '90s, and they're now fully supporting that expansion. So I think states are kind of pushing the envelope a little bit where they can, and the entitlement programs are such a huge issue at the federal level in terms of the divide between the Republicans and the and the Democrats. That I just don't think anything substantial is going to happen in the short term.
1: One thing, unfortunately, that is happening in the short term is as a result of COVID where there was a moratorium on determining eligibility, Medicaid covered many who had not gone through a new process uh, during their time on Medicaid. Now with the COVID public health emergency going off, Congress has moved beyond COVID. Uh, We are going through a period where what's on the top of everyone's mind is this action by the states of redetermination of Medicaid eligibility. It is something that had happened every year on a rolling basis and now is being reinstituted. It's not always in the headlines. And actually, I, it's not being discussed as much up here as as I, I think you we, we would hope. Uh, but this is a very large change from our COVID period and why it's uh, risen to such importance this year. How do you see this playing out in the various states? I, I know it's maybe not consistent across the states. And also, I'd like to get your feedback as to how you think different states are handling trying to transition some of these current Medicaid recipients that may lose out through the redetermination
0: in terms of their coverage. What we, in my niche of health policy, we call this the Medicaid unwinding or the great unwinding. And as you said, during covid States got a bump in their federal match to their Medicaid program of 6.2%. So they got a financial incentive. And the agreement was they would keep anybody who enrolled in Medicaid, they would keep on. And the idea was to make sure that they would get you know, their COVID vaccines and their treatments and have access to needed care. And so Medicaid enrollment grew and then it stayed stagnant because there wasn't any redetermination during that time period. Well, as of April 1st of this year, states have started to redetermine all of the people on their programs to make sure they're eligible because some program, some people have, you know, gotten jobs and gotten employer-sponsored coverage. Other have moved. Maybe they've died. And so all of those people are still on the roll. So there's this systematically going through the, the Medicaid rolls and redetermining whether they're, they're income eligible for the programs that they're in. So this is a huge undertaking by the states. Um, The advocates are super concerned about states not doing due diligence in terms of keeping people who are eligible enrolled. For example, Arkansas, there's a period of states can take up to 14 months, and most states are doing their redeterminations across that whole time period. So they're doing a chunk every single month. They're going through different categories, and many states are prioritizing children, newborns, people with chronic conditions. And so there are mechanisms to try to meet, you know, to focus on those that need coverage the most. But then there are states like Arkansas and Florida, which have hit the news, the national news recently, which in Arkansas, they're pursuing it very quickly and they are going to be done. They started on April 1st and they're going to be done within six months. So a new analysis showed that 500,000 people across 11 states have already fallen off Medicaid. And partly that's due to what they call procedural errors. So you send a letter, nobody responds, you drop them. Other states are sending a letter, then they're sending another letter, and there's just a more active engagement with the enrollees. So there's a lot of conflict between some state governments and the advocates who are really pushing to slow this down, make sure people who are eligible are covered. And then for those who are not eligible, that they get Access to the marketplace, either the healthcare.gov, the federal or the state marketplace plans, which they're likely eligible for a subsidy. So we're all watching the numbers and there's not really good time relevant information right now. We're looking at the monthly enrollment reports and advocates are talking to members who have been dropped. And a lot of the members don't know they're doing this unwinding. A lot of people don't even know they're enrolled in Medicaid. So it's kind of a little bit of a cluster.
1: You know, Lynn, to add to this complexity, you have had a movement in many states in recent years away from Medicaid recipients simply being in, in a fee-for-service Medicaid program and, and being signed up for Medicaid managed care, where insurance companies, HMOs, are providing the coverage. How do you see this process you're describing uh, playing out regarding the role of the health plans Where someone is actually enrolled in an HMO or in a health plan, and even though they're a Medicaid recipient, as far as they know, they're covered by Aetna or covered by Centene or covered by uh, Kaiser Permanente. And then all of a sudden, uh, they're into this situation where the state is going through a redetermination process.
0: Yeah, again, you know, it varies across states. And on average, they're about 55 percent of all the Medicaid enrollees are in managed care. But that can be up to like in California, it's 80 percent. Minnesota, it's 84 percent of their enrollees. And so like in Minnesota and California, they're working with the health plans to communicate with members and they're sharing data and information and the health plans are on board. When the health plans are get their capitation rates and people don't know they're enrolled, they're not using services. So it's been a boon to the health plans, especially in the last year where people are, are uh, obviously transitioning to other employment and other coverage options.
1: At the same time, you've got clinicians and, and hospitals out there who've been providing care uh, to many of these who may lose out in the redetermination process. At the community level, how do you see this impacting those who provide care? And I know it's something that is being looked at by the research community. And what do you think is going to happen here with those who, who are right now in that group that you know could be going through a, a cancer therapy or some other kind of uh, chronic care uh, services that they really depend on?
0: You know, that's the biggest concern. And I think for hospitals, there's going to be in the short term a rise in uncompensated care. I think federal qualified health centers are going to see an influx of people and they may be doing some of the enrollment activities when someone comes and says, I don't have Medicaid anymore. I don't know where to go. And they might be helping them get enrolled in whatever they're eligible for. So there's definitely going to be a transition period and different, you know, a lot of Researchers have estimated how many that's going to be, how many got employer coverage, but it's all simulation and estimation. Nobody really knows. And, and we probably won't know for another year how this all shakes out, but there's definitely going to be more uninsured.
1: Obviously, that'll be the, an issue for those who provide care. Another topic that is much discussed right now in the congressional context, uh, because it was included in, in a House bill Medicaid work requirements. That was not included in the ultimate debt ceiling package, but it's clear that it's on the agenda of some in Washington. What do you know about this policy? Has it been applied? I know there are a few places where pieces of it have been applied and where it's been utilized. What are its implications? What have been the effects?
0: Well, work requirements for Medicaid haven't worked very well, and the reason is that, you know, there's an estimate that eight out of 10 Medicaid recipients who are not blind, disabled, or, you know, are able to work already work. They either work part-time or full-time. And so you're really targeting a very small number of people. And then in order to kind of get them into a work program, Medicaid is not a work access program. Medicaid is a healthcare program, health care coverage program. So you have to connect with your Department of employer relations, or you have to find a place to get them enrolled in some kind of job finding program. Medicaid doesn't do that. And so there's an extra added paperwork of helping these people find a place to find employment or show that they're looking for employment. And it's a couple layers of bureaucracy to make that happen. And then people have to document that they are indeed working. So then you have to work with the employer and get their W-2s and get their pay stubs. And so, you know, once states have figured this this out and early, early on, Arkansas was the first state to kind of do this work requirements. Once they found out how much it cost and the bureaucracy involved in doing the work requirements, they stopped. It just it didn't make any sense to spend a significant amount of money to get people into work programs that just weren't weren't working. I don't mean to pick on Arkansas on this call, but they're back with another request for a waiver to allow them to do work requirements again. So we'll see how that goes. It's one way to limit your enrollment. And it's a, you know, it's one way to sort of try to do some cost efficiencies, but by not allowing, you know, people on your roles, but it's, it's very draconian and the evidence is that it doesn't work.
1: Dealing with the the most vulnerable, which is in a sense, the definition of the Medicaid program, one of the important aspects of it is something that our audience may be familiar with, which is Medicaid disproportionate share hospital payments or DISH payments for our purposes of discussion. We're heading to one of those policy cliffs right now if Congress doesn't act to prevent before the end of the year reductions in these DISH payments. How important is this program to Medicaid recipients, to the Medicaid population, and beyond that, to the providers that serve them. And if we did go over the cliff and have pretty significant cuts in the program, what would the possible effects of this?
0: So the disproportionate share payments are one of several supplemental payments that are included in the hospital rates or the managed care rates. And it has made the program complicated in terms of its financing. But the goal was to pay for, you know, the uninsured and un, unpaid costs of care for the uninsured and for the Medicaid shortfall. So what, you know, how the amount that Medicaid pays in relation to your costs. In MACPAC, so that's the advisory committee that advises Congress. And their one of their recent reports this spring was that They found no meaningful relationship between the disproportionate share allotments and the intent of the program. So I think this has raised concern about with the advisory committee and of Congress. It's like, well, if we're providing these for hospitals that serve low-income populations, but it's going to hospitals that serve other, you know, don't have a population, you know, patient base that's low-income is this program really meeting its goals and objectives? So I think they're taking a critical look. The problem now is that, you know, under the American Rescue Plan, dish allotments were increased by 1.5 billion. So you have your regular dish payments, but plus your extra dish payments. So there's, I think there's a a significant concern about the safety net hospitals with this cut. And again, it depends on each state, sort of how much dish they get and how they distribute it across hospitals. And that varies. And it's not always easy to find that data and information. So I think there's going to be pressure. They've extended the cuts over a period of time, which I think will be helpful. And then they're trying. I think they're trying to renegotiate sort of the distribution. And so I think that's going to be on the plate for several years. I think people are going to be what advocates, in addition to hospitals and providers, are going to be watching these cuts and the impact.
1: Medicaid payment. And then all these sort of different streams of of funding and the formulas that are used uh, for this federal state mix funded program are simply to say extremely complex. And in recent years, actually to add another layer of complexity is this, the addition of something called supplemental payments. Uh, One way to boil it down is to say states make arrangements with hospitals to maximize the financial help they get with uncompensated care for higher costs and, and the cost for higher cost uh, Medicaid patients. It is vital to the hospitals, but the last two administrations uh, seem to want to cut these payments. Obviously I think for our audience here, we could take a whole podcast on even just explaining how supplemental payments work, but basically to suffice it to say uh, through these arrangements, the states have found ways to increase the federal match and to get more money to the hospitals. How do you see this process, though, playing out in terms of federal policy towards these programs that maximize federal contributions, enhance the ultimate payments to hospitals, but probably pull more from the federal government uh, than they otherwise would have wanted to spend on on the care they're paying for?
0: Yeah, well... Most states have at least one provider tax that's used to support their Medicaid financing. And CMS and the Congress has approved of these taxes as as long as they meet certain conditions. One, that they're broad-based. So it's not like we're only going to tax teaching hospitals or we're only going to tax for-profit hospitals. It has to be broad-based. It has to be uniform. So you can't tax one hospital more than another. It has to be all uniformly applied. And then the key one that I think you're getting at is what they call hold taxpayers harmless, which is kind of a weird way to say they don't want to fully replace the amount of tax that a hospital contributes. So like a for-profit hospital with very low Medicaid payments may be paying, because it has to be uniform, maybe paying more in taxes, but they don't want the redistribution method to be, they get their full tax reimbursed through the Medicaid program, through the supplemental payment to the hospital. And there is some indication, and so CMS has been on states to monitor this over time. And I think recently there's been, and I haven't found like who's the culprit, but there was guidance released by CMS that hospitals were actually doing this on their own. So the state wasn't pooling money and then redistributing to the hospitals. They were redistributing it, they were giving it to an entity and the hospitals were doing their own redistribution, and so the message to the states was: you need to figure out what's going on in your state in terms of the distribution. and And the intent is that there be a redistribution, right? So the hospitals that serve less of the Medicaid population and uninsured contribute more towards, and that's distributed to those who are serving more of the low income. It's super interesting, but states have been doing this for a long, long time, and CMS. Has these kind of core guardrails, if you will, and hospitals have found ways, and you can see that a hospital saying, "Well, I don't want to pay for, I want to get the full amount back that I contributed, or close to the full amount," and that is that's like against the basically federal law, and so there's kind of a, another crackdown, and this has been a, this has been an issue over the years, and it kind of bubbles up. And then it gets back under control and there seems to be kind of new mechanisms. And in the guidance, they say it might be a formal agreement or an informal agreement between providers, which makes me think that it's happening sort of outside of the realm of the state contracts. So I think it's going to get figured out and, you know, it's this sort of push and pull between the private sector and the public sector of where that money goes. But the intent is that it go, the Medicaid Funds and the redistribution go to low-income hospitals that are serving Medicaid.
1: Do you have any sense from the research you mentioned on Medicaid disproportionate share that there seemed to be some kind of disconnect between what would apparently be the attention and the actual distribution of of the funds? On the supplemental side, is is there any research that tells us whether it is going to enhance, uh, in a sense, however you would define the right hospitals?
0: A disproportionate share. There's more clear evidence that that's you know there's not a relationship here. I there's less available publicly available data to tell us that, but it's clear from CMS's sort of strongly worded letter that they have some indication that this is happening and they, they are going to be reviewing any of the any provider taxes or any any you know health related taxes and make sure that they meet these kind of core principles of the. Of the policy.
1: I guess it is the case that these approaches are really being used both in states. We're now down to, I guess, almost single digits. We're still a little bit above that in terms of states that have not expanded Medicaid and those uh, against those who have. Is there any sense that it's used more in the states that haven't expanded Medicaid or is it pretty evenly divided across the states as an approach?
0: No, I think it's pretty evenly divided. And I think this is why Medicaid. Is interesting to work with, but also gets complicated. Is that the Congress, maybe with CMS, I don't know, has used the Medicaid program to achieve other policy objectives? You know, so when we had the COVID, they bump up the they bump up the um, the the federal matching matching rate to get money to the states to do COVID stuff, and then we have uh, they pay ninety percent match to get states to do electronic medical records and to improve their technology. So that's a 90% match as opposed to like Minnesota, we get 50% match. You get higher rates to do different things. So one of the things that some of the states negotiated during, I don't even know, I guess it was early Obama administration was 1115 waivers to do these low income subsidy programs. So they're uncompensated care pools, which is made up of Medicaid money. And so the Medicaid, it's a, through 1115 waiver. So it's a waiver process. You make an application to the government and states like Florida, Texas, but also California and Massachusetts. So it's not just the non-expansion states negotiated. We're going to have this uncompensated care pool and provide payments to hospitals who do substantial care for uninsured and low-income Medicaid populations. So it's another flow of money to those hospitals in terms of Medicaid money. For doing uncompensated care. Now, this chip is not in the press at all because it's super hard to explain. And then every state has their own kind of deal with CMS in terms of how it's set up. But it's a significant amount of um, of financing into to those states, and I think is one of the barriers for them to expand because they're already getting a big chunk of Medicaid through this program. And for Florida. DeSantis got that waiver approved before uh, President Trump left office, and that's approved through 2030. So he has that uncompensated care pool that's pretty much only for hospitals, directly to hospital payments for uncompensated care, which is what the expansion is supposed to do, right? Is it better to do this low-income subsidy pool or uncompensated care pool or expansion? And for now, they have less pressure the hospitals are not clamoring at the door because they already have a pool that's financing that. But not every state. There's only like seven states that have it, so it isn't like something you can set a policy. And I know the Obama administration tried to pull back on some of them. Two states have the Hawaiian. Um, I can't remember the other state. Theirs have have expired, but Florida and Texas have extended their program. So again, it's like almost. To really understand the financing, you can look at the Medicaid program and the federal match, but then all these supplemental payments that come through and then the managed care and then uncompensated care pools, which don't fit into really any of those categories. So there's a lot of a lot of flexibility in the Medicaid program and states that know how to use that flexibility and, you know, can get their programs through under uh, administration that's amenable to their ideas. That's kind of how things work.
1: Well. We've delved into the Medicaid uh, program this afternoon and despite its complexity uh, undeniably in terms of those uh, who are covered by it on the ground, it is a, a link to life that's really critically important to them. Lynn, we deeply appreciate all the work you do and enhancing knowledge about these programs that are so complicated, this program that's so complicated, is critically important. We really thank you for uh, being with us this afternoon and know that our audience will be very interested in the discussion that we just had.
0: Thank you, Chip. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow Chip at Chip Kahn. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in depth conversations with healthcare leaders. Oh,